Ian, we didn't even get into this. If we'd had longer to talk to Ian about this in front of everybody, it would have been great. He is, um, is one of the, some of you will have heard him before on the, on the radio. So he is one of the, I think in some ways, the go-to person now for sane evangelical Anglicanism, or even not even Anglicanism, just sane evangelicalism in the media, in the public square. So you will often be scrolling through the channels and Ian will be doing something on a radio program on Radio 4, he'll be on Sunday, he'll be on the BBS, so it's actually not a surprise. He's on the, he's, and he handles the media brilliantly. It's a really exemplary... That's actually where we've kind of got to know each other initially, really, was through that more public role that he's had in representing Christianity well and graciously, but clearly in the media, which is, as you know, not easy to do at all. Ian is gonna, he's very kindly just going to hang out for a bit with us, right? So he's going to sit in here, he's going to be around at lunch... Um, and we'll leave it to, like, as, as most of us will. So in some ways, I, I have underutilized him because I, wanted, I actually feel like we're not going to get the whole, the whole conference. It will only hang together in a way if we walk through it with one person and you either, in a sense, I've built that to, around myself. But I wanted Ian to be around because I thought the Q&A with him would really help, but also just for him to be on hand for people to talk to him. And I'm, I'm sure he's expecting half of you to talk to him about Revelation, but if you wanted to talk to him about some of the more public work he's done in, in the, the media and the Anglican Church and Synod and sexuality and all sorts of other things, I'm sure he'd... Is I'm, the Church of England apostate? Is the Church of England apostate? Is the Church of England, in fact, Babylon? I mean, let's go there. Um, so, uh, unfortunately, the problem is Ian's done his job so well that I've already been approached by a senior member of, the, uh, of, of this group who come up to me and said, to be honest, there has already been discussion about replacing the Think Conference with the Thought Conference and replacing you with Ian. Um, and I, th- I like the idea that the, the thought might be past tense. In the sense, It would almost imply that the speaker had thought about what they believed before they turned up. Um, whereas in my case, that's not actually true. So I thought that was... Uh, yet another backhanded compliment I've had, but I feel like, yeah, I, I can take it. So thank you. Um, there were uh, two people in particular had mentioned questions about the preaching of Revelation, which I wanted to um, just take now. So somebody asked me first thing this morning, I think, Martin? And then it was Andrew was going to say something as well. So I just, I'll take, I'll take two questions on the preaching and then we will go, we've obviously got the whole of the rest of the book to do as well. So we'll probably just have to leave it at that for now. Martin. What was the reason for preaching through Revelation? Um, I, I think in a way, there, there's a reason I had. There's a reason that the team more widely, including the senior pastor, had. And there's a reason we didn't know about that has actually turned out to be really helpful. Um, the reason I had was that I, in a five-year period, want to cycle through all the genres of the Bible. So in our, in our expository preaching, we do a mixture of expository and thematic preaching here. So that means you don't, you don't, you're not always in a book. You're in a book for probably half or maybe just over half the time. Um, and want to cycle through, in a five-year window, like what are all the kinds of literature. So you're teaching people how to read the Bible all the time. So I, Revelation was on my shortlist at that point and suggesting it in a team meeting. But to my surprise, it was seized on very quickly by the senior pastor and the rest of the team saying, we should definitely do Revelation. That would be, and I thought it would be a hard sell because it's a difficult book and they knew they were going to have to preach quite a lot of it and that was going to be hard. But instead, everybody went, ah, we'd love to do that. And I think the second reason, in a, in a sense, that, they, that they, they went with is this kind of book is something that we otherwise don't really know and people are bamboozled by and we feel like we need to give some clarity on it and I think in the midst of that is also the fact that in our very diverse context here we get quite a lot of put you know 
one of the challenges people often make when they come to our church from a more Pentecostal kind of church is that the spiritual world and the reality of the unseen world is just much lower in the agenda of white evangelicals than it is of many other believers in this city and elsewhere in the country. And the revelation, really, you can't do that. You can't minimize the spiritual world. So that's really a second thing that has come through in the series, and that's been really helpful. I think you're just teaching the Bible better and not minimize. You're trying to see your own blind spots, really. Um, but the third thing that we didn't know would happen is that actually the church has grown in, in part as a result of the series as well, and that we have had much higher attendance this year than same time last year. Part, no, that's not true in every context that preaching series don't attract people in all parts of the country, but around here they kind of do because a lot of people come out the woodwork and there's a lot of people in this part of London with a lot of Christian heritage for whom this is interesting. So we've probably had a, a growth bounce as well as a result. or in, in, It's hard to read, but partly as a result, I think. So, yeah, three good reasons to preach Revelation, I think. Andrew. Uh, my question's kind of pastoral. Having preached through a series, um, we've been over the last two days through a journey with flying scorpions and angels and a lot yeah. of strange stuff. How do you help the congregation keep a sense of the whole when you're in the midst of some of this difficult stuff? Maybe in week six, how do you carry yeah. with you? How do you help the congregation keep a, a sense of the big picture when you're stuck in the really tricky bits um well first thing to say is we cheated because i i did revelation eight and nine in a seminar evening because i I realized that even with 12 or 13 weeks we weren't quite going to be able to read the whole book and i wanted to to read the whole book so i actually once the series had started we said let's break out those two chapters and do them in a seminar so you've got a q a context smaller congregation still recorded put online podcasted but didn't want to it was a little bit more like this in setting although obviously the audience is different um, so for that particularly tricky bit, we did that. But I think the other thing is that the nice thing about Revelation 1, and this is where I, just in case Ian thinks I've spent the whole three days going, this is what I don't like about Ian. I've actually spent most of the time drawing from a lot of what he's done. And one of the best things I found about Ian's commentary was at the very start, in fact, I thought the, the biggest contribution that Ian made to my understanding of Revelation was actually the very beginning when he went through, remember right back at the start, we had a page where we looked at the introductory seven verses of Revelation and said, look, here's how Revelation is letter, apocalypse, and prophecy, and that, how that helps you read And we really went to town on that week one, saying, this is why you need to read Revelation with these things in mind, and read it as this kind of writing. In week one, that's fine, because you can do that for 10 or 15 minutes of a message and spend the last 15 minutes on the glory of Jesus, and everyone goes home happy, but then you, you keep going back to it. And then when you're in the middle of a symbolic vision of locust or whatever, you can say, do you remember at the start we went here, and that's now set us up for this. And Revelation is, quite, is, is good like that, because you can actually preach chapters one to five, without getting into any of the deep weird. So you can build quite a lot of confidence in the church that they're going to get a lot out of this book. It's going to help them worship and practically apply to their lives before you jump into the stuff you're talking about. And by then, hopefully, you've got some momentum and you've done it. Our team did brilliantly. You, you basically, so the people are coming weeks five, six, seven, already going, I think I'm getting a lot out of this book. And that's really helped us. So, yeah, those are probably two, two hours of that. I'll quickly take John as well. Is this about preaching and that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. How did we prepare our team? I've got at least two of them here. Andy, have you, I can't remember, have you done a message in the, session, in the series as well? So we've got two of them sitting down here who preached, on our, and then a bunch of others as well. Any comments on that? Um, he didn't prepare our team. <laughs> this is very dangerous here, isn't it? Yeah, he didn't prepare us. No, we had a couple of meetings where we just discussed some general ideas and where we think we're going to lean in terms of 
Yeah, yeah. And, and, and we've got, we got a strong team. Like, it's, it's not, you know, we, I, I think I, I, you've got to contextualise, haven't you? Our, we've got a, as you can see, I mean, this is a church of 1,600 people and you've got a staff team of 30 or 40. So you, it's not like you're going, gosh, this person doesn't really know what they're doing. We'll give them a bit of revelation to sit, you know, you, we've got a good team. And if, we, and if somebody who is newer to preaching gets up, you, you've done work and you also, and you just adapt. Like you, you, you say, well, actually, this guy's preached, how many times have you preached publicly, Neil? Four, five, that kind of thing? Yeah, so we give Neil Revelation 5, which is like, that's a really good, you sh- that we should all be able to do Revelation 5 reasonably well. It's not, I wouldn't, give, I wouldn't have given real Neil Revelation 9, and if I think if I had, he'd have burped it back in my face, and rightly so. Um, he's like, I'm not going to do that. It, do you know what I mean? So you have to play to your, your, your team as well. So that, that, some of this stuff won't apply to every context, but I, I thought that was helpful to hear a bit on the preaching, because that for some of us is how this is going to land. Let's, um, let's get, jump back into Revelation 19. What I'm going to do is, we're going to read Revelation 19 and 20 in advance of doing it, and then we're going to read Revelation 20 and 21 at the end, um, which for reasons that I hope will become clear as we do. But let's read Revelation 19, 11, uh, 11 onwards. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he's called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who'd received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who hadn't worshipped the beast or its image and hadn't received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead didn't come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. 
From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they'd done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they'd done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So we start with the vision of the rider on the white horse, which uh, Ian has taken my punchlines for. Um, but we have, a, this is a vision comprised of 12 clauses. Um, and the clauses don't necessarily, they don't, they're not as visible to us because obviously the way that and joins together sentences, but there are 12 Clauses separated by a chi or a day, the two sort of conjunctions you might use in place of and or so or whatever. Um, then I saw a heaven open and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. Jesus has been absent for several chapters at this point. If you think about it, you, there is a bit of a how long, O Lord, going on in the background. The church has been taking a pounding and where is Jesus? We saw him as the lamb in chapter 14 and since then he's sort of been in the, you know, he's there, but we haven't really had him explicitly described or envisioned in the rest of the visions and so we're beginning to wonder what he's doing but when he arrives he is riding a beast like the harlot is riding a beast but it's a horse ready for war and he's now not standing as a priest but sitting as a king and the one sitting on it's called faithful and true there are four names of Christ in this passage right so faithful and true or yes and amen we might say the one who every word of his proves true and that's the first name that we meet but the four of them in this very short little passage his eyes are like flame of fire. We've seen that in chapter one. And on his head are many diadems. The diadems of the world are countable. Yeah? You get seven, you have 10. You have this many heads, this many horns, that many crowns. The diadems of Jesus are uncountable. There are too many to count. He has many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. So his, he's got four names revealed, but in many ways only three of them are actually revealed and the fourth one isn't given to us because we don't know what it is. It's a name that's so sacred that only he knows what it is. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And this is the thing we, point we're making. Is it, is it his blood, which is often what's assumed, or is it the blood of other people? And is it the blood of his enemies? Is it the blood of his enemies in an Isaiah 63 sort of way? Who is this who's returning from Edom, having trashed them all and got, his, got blood on his clothes? Is it even the blood of the martyrs from the wine press? But the point is, I don't think it's the blood of Jesus um, and I think you would in instinctively think it was because you'd say he's the lamb who's been slain but I think his blood is actually the blood either of his enemies or of his martyrs or perhaps we're intended to see a bit of both in there anyway and that means that as I made the comment that Ian was just pointing out that our blood has turned his clothes red and his blood has turned our clothes white because the armies of heaven are arrayed in fine linen white and pure so interestingly when it says in that song which by the way I'm fine to sing he shall return in robes of white and I should think I'm not sure he will. I think he might return in robes of red, or at least in, of white and red, but I don't think we're told that he returns in robes of white. I know why people are saying that, and there's a lot of other white connected to Jesus, as we've seen, um, but actually his clothes are stained with the blood of those either who have been slain or whom he has slain, or both, and, but his blood has made our clothes white. And in some ways, it's another beautiful way of thinking about the great exchange that takes place, isn't it? The great exchange that Luther spoke about, you know, God, who made, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And the one who is white has become red, and the, one who's, the ones who are, deserve to be red have become white. 
And we're white and pure following him on white horses. The third name, of course, here, the word of God, is classic John, although it is the first time it's appeared in Revelation. So we have faithful and true. We have question mark. What's that name? Third name is the word of God. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, which is Psalm 2, but the sword comes from his mouth, indicating that his word comes through his, his rule comes through his word. And on his thigh and on his, in his robe, where you would expect a sword to be, is a name. That's the significance of the thigh. I don't think that means that it is particularly spiritual to tattoo your thigh, which is somehow why people would go, well, he's got a tattoo with a name on his thigh. This is where the thigh is, of course, the place where your sword would be. Um, and so, if you like, you've got, a, well, you've got a mouth where you would, you've got a sword where you would expect a word to be, and you've got a word where you'd expect a sword to be. It's, again, the paradox of the way in which Jesus will exercise government over the earth through his word and through his name. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And that final name that is written on the thigh is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, which is not, those two are not quite identical, are they? King of Kings is a political claim. Lord of Lords goes higher. It's almost a theological claim. It's a, he, he is both imperator et deus. He is both emperor and God. And you can't over-distinguish the two, but there is a, a, there's a political sense to one that, in contrast to the religious sense of the other. So this is one of those just stunning passages where you see the glory of Jesus unveiled yet again. And it's one of those passages along with chapter 5 and chapter 1 where you would see a a Christology presented and packed very densely into a handful of verses in a vision. And so if you get the the one with the eyes like fire and the hair white like wool from chapter 1 and you say that's the same as the lion and the lamb of chapter 5 and that's the same as the rider on the white horse, you've got probably the three great... Christological text in Revelation where you can draw, particularly for preaching actually, but for helping people worship, seeing the glory of Jesus. But which coming is this? What's the, you know, when he comes on a white horse, which coming is this? I haven't, this is one of those ones where I haven't actually asked Ian, but we won't, um, we won't be able to debate it, but it'd be interesting to know which side of this. I think I know where you are on the coming of the Son of Man generally, but I don't know if you read that into, you're an you're a 80, 70 sort of parousia, ascension, vindication, sort of coming of the Son of Man guy, aren't you? We've talked about that before. Uh, no, parousia means the coming of yes. the but coming on the clouds means coming to the ancient days. Of sure, okay. Uh, so you're, okay, interesting. So you would say sometimes the language of the coming is referring to the coming of the Son of Man. Some, it means if it's coming on the clouds, it's going, it's the ascension. But, but when it uses the word parousia, it's referring to the future. Interesting. I didn't know that. That's good. Okay. Um, yes. Well, that, so that means you're probably, you may well be on the same page as me on this page, which would be nice to be on the same page on the same page, um, which would be great. So the coming of Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. We touched on this in the back and forth we had yesterday where we used Ian's name in vain and talked about where Tom Wright was and where Dick France and Peter Lightheart. We had a little discussion about it yesterday. But here, in Matthew 24, the abomination of desolation is set up in Jerusalem. God's people should flee when this happens because trouble is coming. False Christs and false prophets arise and deceive many in the period leading up to it, and the saints mustn't be fooled. The Son of Man comes on the clouds in great glory, like lightning which lights up east and west. Corpses attract vultures. Immediately after that, the heavenly lights go dark, the sign of the Son of Man appears, and angels gather the saints from the four winds. In Revelation 17:20, Babylon, mother of prostitutes and earth's abominations, will fall, which obviously, if you're me, is Jerusalem. If you're Ian, it's not. But the parallels are still there, actually, even if it is a different city. God's people are urged to come out of her to avoid sharing in her plagues and judgments. 
A false Christ and a false prophet will arise and deceive many in the period leading up to it and the saints mustn't be fooled. Jesus will come riding on a white horse to judge the nations and make war. Birds will feast on the corpses. The beast and the false prophet get destroyed. Immediately after this, an angel appears to bind the devil and prevent him from deceiving the nations, which in many ways is parallel to the angels gathering the elect from the four winds, at least in the way I read it. And again, you compare the son of man's coming and the death of the beast in Daniel 7. So I think there's quite a lot of structural parallels and narrative parallels between the coming of the son of man and the rider on the white horse in Revelation 19 and the coming of the Son of Man in Matthew 24. Obviously, if you read both of them as they refer to the future return of the Son of Man, you're going to see some of those parallels, but make something different of it. So again, this is one of those things where you can't do justice to every permutation in the presentation of the text. But if you, in, under that interpretation, Revelation 19 is referring to the vindication and the coming of the Son of Man up to the Ancient of Days, rather than the return of Jesus in the future to the earth as judge. And that probably you will have, many of you will have seen that coming given the way, the more preacherous way of read much of the book. Um, but I, would, I wouldn't die for it either. I mean, I, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's just in, essential, but that to me seems like a more consistent reading given the, other, the rest of the ways in which I'm reading the events of the drama. I also think it helps you with the chronology because, of course, if, as I suspect no in the room, most of us are broadly amillennial in our framework you do end up with otherwise a bit of a chronological curveball if you see the return of Jesus in chapter 19 as referring to the end of history and then Revelation 20 is going back to effectively the cross and the resurrection and starting again. It's as if without any narrative marker, you are jumping back from the return of Jesus back to AD 30 or 33 or whatever. Whereas if you read the coming of the Son of Man this way, you don't have that chronological problem. Now, I know that that is not necessarily going to convince everybody but I will I'll leave it to fester for a moment we'll take some questions in a bit because I know there's a lot there um and just and keep moving for now and we will return um we shall return um so are you pre post or amillennial or are you all three now I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna first of all I'm gonna refer to this what I think my father best resource I found on the millennium is it takes time it's a two-hour long discussion in which John Piper moderates a discussion between Sam Storms, who's A-mill, Doug Wilson, who's post-mill, and Jim Hamilton, who's pre-mill, and they have a very friendly but pretty robust argument for two hours about which of them's right. And it's just one of those really, really helpful clarification-like debates where you feel like, I think all three of you have given the best reasons why you should hold your view, given the best reasons why the other guys are wrong, and still all come out smiling at the end. It's really helpful, and we... Because the issue is so controverted, I tend to fob people off with that rather than delving into all the ins and outs of the text and which one is right because it just takes so long to explain what the terms mean that anyone who's new to the discussion finds themselves totally confused before you've started. Whether you're new or old to it. You want to, my, the best, Doug, Doug Wilson comes up with the best line in the whole thing, which is where he's discussing it and, and his post-mill position and he just says, but to be honest, I, I don't mind changing my theology in mid-air, which I just thought was this wonder, <laughs> wonderful idea of that is, you know... Clearly, two of the three of you are going to find at least some of what you've said to be quite wrong, uh, and possibly all three. Um, but in a way, given what I've said on the previous page about the coming of Jesus, if I was right about this, if that's the best way of reading chapter 19, there is a version of all three which turns out to be correct. As in, you, can, you honestly can be pre, post, and amillennial all at the same time, because it depends which coming of Jesus you're talking about being before and after. Because you're premillennial in the sense that you believe that the coming of Jesus in chapter 19, 
which isn't the final return of Jesus, it's the coming of Jesus in the ascension and vindication of the Son of Man, that that actually does come before the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ. And you're amillennial in the sense that you don't believe you're dealing with a literal thousand years, complete with literal beheaded, resurrected martyrs. You're saying the millennium is the church age. And you're post-millennial in the sense that the return of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead and the renewal of creation do come after, post, the millennium. So you can have your cake, eat it, and have it again if you want. Now, obviously, in order to do that, you, you can't do that if you don't read Revelation 19 as referring to the coming of the Son of Man in the sense I'm sketching it, and I think where Ian is, because if you don't do that, you do have a future return of Jesus on the white horse in chapter 19, and that messes up what I've just said. But if you do see it that way, you, are, you can be pre, post, and amillennial all at the same time. And the so what of that is that the vindication and victory of the martyrs in the millennium have finally come. And after all the waiting and suffering and persevering, the martyrs will be raised. And in some ways, that's the narrative climax of the book. Hello, Ian. I'm, that's a guess, but I don't know if that's true. It might not be. All right. Can we do it? Uh, what a, can, wait, wait, wait. Can I do a clapometer first, and then Ian will explain what he means, which I'm sure will be interesting, and then we will do it again. But if I was to ask you to pick one of the three labels when you came in today, which one of those three millennial labels do you own? Don't worry about, you know. What, which one would you say I broadly am? Who, how many people would say I'm, I think I'm broadly amillennial? Okay. How many would say I'm broadly postmillennial? And how many would, that, Dave, that lack, you have the courage of your convictions, for goodness sake. Um, and how many would say you're broadly premillennial? Gosh, not a single one. That's interesting. Now, you are going to complicate that by saying something fiendishly interesting. Well, what Augustine meant by amillennialism is that the thousand-year reign of Christ actually is, is corresponds to the church age, the, the entire time yeah. between Jesus' ascension and yeah. his return. Yes. Uh, Which is what, that's what you're clapping about, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. okay. <laughs> basically if you come from an Anglican context you're not used to theologically well trained people I realise that and so you're just <laughs> well, it's just that the difficulty with that is that John already has given a time period to that, that from the ascension to the uh, return of Christ that's the 1260 days yes and so I think most I would again I'm, I'm going to guess that this is what many of us would have taught if we cause I guess a number of us teach this to some degree is that, the, that there is a sense, I was talking to someone about it yesterday actually, there's a sense in which the church age is the, is the tribulation, the time, times and half a time, even from an idealist reading, and a sense in which the church age is the thousand years. It's a thousand years of triumph, it's three and a half years of suffering, and the two refer to the same period, which is back to your metaphor meaning multiple things. Which... It, it is, except that the 42 months is the time of, the time, times and half a time are the time of tribulation, the 42 months are that same time period as a time of testimony, and 1260 days, the same time period as a time Yes, I agree. So I'm not any of those three. No, I, I, I couldn't quite believe that. <laughs> um, but, but, I think in, but I think for those of us who are a, a Miller in the Augustinian sense, I think that actually does... I think that, that's, that's typically what you, what you do as you read Revelation and the, the numbers. You say, well, there's a sense in which, with the idealist hat on, this is a period of tribulation that God will preserve and protect us. And there's a sense in which it's a period of very, very long, almost indefinite, not quite indefinite because Jesus will come at the end of it, but a very, very long period of triumph as well. And so that's the, the, sort of the, the way that I think they fit together. I will come to you. Okay. I was just saying, is, I, I wonder if there, is there a legitimate way in which you can have the pattern eaten? Because I think the classic amillennial view, I think, well, I know, it's, it, 
Is it possible to be a literary pre-millennialist, but a chronological amillennialist? Kind of. Okay. You see, I think what you're saying is actually very similar to the have the cake and eat it view I'm advocating here, but possibly you would, go, you would try and do a little bit less harmonising between the amillennial framework that you'd have elsewhere in the New Testament and the details of the text. So in what sense would you be, in what sense does Jesus return before the millennium in that context? Oh, I see what I mean. Oh, Jesus doesn't return chronologically before the millennium, but he does in the book of Revelation. I don't know if John is expecting us to read this and think, ah, therefore, in terms of chronology, that I think you can do that. I just think it's probably, if we were to do it, we just have to acknowledge that that's not what any pre-millennialist means by that word. So, yeah. So, okay, <laughs> that's why I can clap. Well, we're all happy then. Okay, let's talk though about what in many ways is the, mo- is the very weird troubling bit of the, of the millennium story, which is the release of Satan at the end. Um, because that, interestingly, when I've, I've sent people off to go and watch that video, we've talked about it, everyone's going, yeah, okay, I'm broadly happy with that. They're fine about that. And then they say something like, so why on earth does Satan get let out again? What is that about? And it was something that until very recently I had not thought about Why is Satan released at the end of the millennium to deceive the nations and attack the saints? What possible purpose could it serve? Under any account, actually, but certainly under the more amillennial view that most of us would have. Now, on the reading taken here, there are three possible reasons for its inclusion. The first is to prevent naivety about the ongoing presence of evil and danger. Because without that, you end up with the early readers going, oh, the overthrow of Babylon, defeat of the beasts, vindication of the martyrs, coming of Jesus. It's nothing but triumph now. It's a thousand years of reigning and there's no threat evermore. And in some ways, the dark side of Revelation 20 is going, yes, there is. It's not over. You, you are not, in that sense, you are, you are reigning in life, but you are also facing tribulation. You're also facing attack. You're also facing a threat. And by putting the devil back into the story at the end of chapter 20, it avoids complacency in a sense. The release of Satan makes it clear that although for now he can't deceive the nations any longer from believing the gospel, the danger to the people of God isn't over. I think that's reason number one. Reason number two is a sort of giant literary chiasm at work in the whole of the Bible, which is to resolve the fall once and for all with a beautiful piece of symmetry. You start with the creation of the cosmos uh, and the garden where God lives with human beings. Then you get the deception of Eve and the judgment upon the serpent or Satan. Then you get the rest of the Bible. Then you get the deception of the nations and the enactment of judgment upon the serpent or Satan. And then you get the recreation of the cosmos. So in a sense, the final deception of the nations and the judgment of the snake corresponds to the initial deception of the woman and the, and the judgment on the snake. And the third reason is to highlight, which is my favourite one, is to highlight the contrast between Jesus and Satan. Both Jesus and Satan are seized, bound, and thrown into a pit which is then shut and sealed until they are released to recruit followers and make war against the kingdom of the other one. But while Jesus remains in the pit for three days, Satan remains in his pit for a thousand years. And while Jesus' release brings about the successful foundation of the church and his ascent into heaven forever, Satan's release brings about a botched attempt to destroy the church, which fails, and his descent into the lake of fire forever. And so I find that the beautiful reversal there is in some ways helping us see once again the dramatic contrast between the work of Christ and the work of the devil. And to me, that's the sort of payoff of reading it that way round.
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I was one of the two people who clapped for Post Mill, and one of the reasons is, and Lloyd Jones had this challenge with Emil, he said it doesn't take seriously enough Romans nine to eleven and the future rescue of Israel. Now, because I did a think conference a few years ago about Romans nine, <laughs> Romans nine to eleven, and we talked about that quite a lot. I don't obviously, and we don't have time to get into it now anyway. I thoroughly agree that an amillennialism that sees no no future hope for the salvation of Israel that doesn't that basically goes well this is this has got nothing to do with anything is completely off beam and i think what we have to do with the future of israel is to disconnect the fa- most people in the evangelical world either say there is a return to the land and a large scale salvation or there is neither and i think you go no there is to me, there is no spiritual significance, biblical significance, to the return to the land, which would be controversial for many, I'm sure, but that's where I, But that there is a large-scale gathering in the future. But that's not something that particularly, to me, emerges from Revelation, if, in all honesty. It emerges from within Romans 11, and that's why I think our theology has to do justice to that. But that's not, to me, a reason to be post-mill or a-mill. It's something that needs to be factored into both accounts of our eschatology, I think. I'm sorry, I'm just going to have to keep going because otherwise we're not going to get to the end and believe me, you'll want to. Um, so, okay. Revelation 20, 11 to 15, which refers to the final judgment. I just want to, this is a, an adaptation of a page I use in another context, but the, there's a couple of things on here that I hope you might find really helpful. In Revelation, final judgment is expressed in a whole bunch of different ways. And of course, they, there are some of that we haven't, we've kind of skipped over them pretty quickly, but there was a very, very fiery text in Revelation 14, fiery, no pun intended, um, about the idea that they'll be tormented day and night in the presence of them forever and ever. It's a very, very fierce judgment text. And Revel- in judgment in Revelation serves a number of functions. It expresses a number of realities. One of them is justice. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. That is that ultimately all of your judgments are just and true. You have not been judged with no reference to what you've done and on the basis entirely of something else. That the dead who are judged are judged on the basis of what they've done. Sorry, according to, not on the basis of. According to what they've done. Revelations also expresses judgment in the sense of the defeat of death. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The second death is another picture, if you like, of the same reality. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Judgment in Revelation is expressed using these kinds of images. It's expressed in the image of exclusion. Outside, if you like, the, new, the bridal city, outside the city are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters. It's expressed in terms of eternity. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. It's expressed in restlessness. They have no rest day or night. And in ongoing experience of some sort, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. And so we're not going to open up this can of worms. And again, worms is another unintentional pun. Maybe you just start talking about revelation and fire and worms appear in your metaphors without you realizing why. We're not going to open up the whole annihilationism thing. But I think that even on on the terms of revelation alone, the effectively the, the traditional view of what some call eternal conscience torment is still probably, to my mind, is closer to the way in which all of the metaphors in Revelation work, even though, of course, you are finding death images merged with experiential images. And in the end, the discussion comes down to which one of those takes precedence in your interpretation and subsumes the metaphor of the other. Um, but that's how Revelation expresses it. We use a whole bunch of different ways, actually. And, of course, repeatedly in the book, Final Judgment expressed in those ways. Lewis, of course, famously, sorry, actually I'll move down rather than going across for a moment. That kind of language is often what's behind these sort of lurid pictures and or graphics of medieval art. And 
This is just a particularly good example of a painting when the various circles of hell and people being tormented in bowls and so on. And that, of course, is what happens when you read all of those images and then you, you know, literalize the imagery and turn it into a painting. Of course, you end up with something that looks like a medieval dungeon torture chamber thing with people upside down being screaming over cauldrons, which is not how I conceptualize what hell is in reality. It's simply a way of concatenating those sorts of images and turning them into a picture. And Dante, of course, this is the schematic of... Dante's Inferno, which, in which the same kind of thing happens. And interesting, you probably can't see it on your pages, but it is interesting that whenever people do that, they end up making some people closer to the circle of hell, the central circle of hell, than others. And it's just interesting that in every generation we hierarchicalize sin, but we hierarchicalize sin very differently. And so you look on your map and you go, wow, who are the people who are directly next to the devil? Who would you think they would be in our world? And you, somebody might say, I don't know pedophiles or so. that would be the kind of in our culture that's like the worst thing you can do it's interesting in Dante's day it was traitors which I suspect if I asked you to list your top 20 sins you wouldn't even mention traitors it's just it worth bearing in mind how every generation hierarchicalizes what really faces terrible judgment and what's not so bad and it's worth I'm not saying therefore that pedophilia isn't bad I trust that's obvious but do you see what we we all have it we all have our hierarchies of sin and they are not self-evident to every generation of the church so that's yeah, just worth when you think about the way it's been represented. But many people in our church, I think, are still operating with something that looks quite like that when they conceptualise what hell is. Because it's been so dominant in the Western artistic tradition and imaginative tradition and literary, poetic tradition. Lewis, of course, famously tried to reframe the way we think about what hell is and he did it a lot he did it in his Narnia books he did it in I think the space trilogy he did it in certainly the great divorce most extensively and he did it in some of his apologetic writings as well my favorite Lewisism on this which I think is overstated in a particular place I'll show you where I think it is but it's a very helpful quote is really tugging against this sort of vision in order to vindicate the justice of God and also to vindicate the self-chosen nature of judgment, which I think we would have to say has been a common theme in the book of Revelation as we've read it, that there is effectively people choose to align with the beast and all of its works and so on. So that is a theme as well. And Lewis says this, as you may have heard, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you're still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. Now, I think that is overstated because I think it's clearly, to me, biblical that God does send people to hell. So I think he has, in, in that denial, I think he's overstated it. But you see the idea, what Lewis is trying to get us to see, I suppose, is that the power of hell is already at work in the world and it's not, it's not simply a future reality that you may or may not go to. It's something from which you need to be delivered that's at work in your life now. And Keller goes, obviously, has obviously influentially followed him and popularised it. Hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into infinity. So Lewis's line, you know, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. If no one is in hell going, help, let me out. You've probably come across this idea in apologetics. And Keller goes quite strongly onto that and just says this is actually exactly what happens with addictions to drugs or gambling or pornography or whatever. You, you make a choice, you get enslaved by the bad choices you've made, but you carry on desiring more and more of the thing that you shouldn't want, but you do. And you are hand, the way of judging an addict in that sense is to hand them over to their own desires and all their destructive impacts. And Keller says that's basically what hell is. 
And you see that trajectory taking place in other areas of life. And that, well, that's been quite influential in the last 10 years. I think since The Reason for God came out, I hear that a lot and actually use an awful lot of it and find it very helpful in pulling intention away from this sort of vision of hell, at least as it's conceptualized. So that you don't, but of course the danger of it is that you end up making hell sound like it's not that bad. Like it's basically a party. And of course, you, at that point, you just have to go, hang on. If I was to read Revelation from beginning to end, what sort of feeling about hell would be created in my mind as I did? Or, and obviously, hell is, I'm using that, borrowing that from the Gospels. The lake of fire in Revelation's terminology. What would I feel about it? And the answer is you wouldn't go, oh yeah, this is fine. This is just a long rave. <laughs> you would end up being utterly horrified about the prospect of ever going there. And so in a way, so long as we can run any framework through the filter of the biblical text and still come out saying, I think that has integrity in light of what the text actually says. I think there is a lot to be said for this sort of corrective to that sort of vision. But to me, the most helpful way I've found of talking about it publicly, and I did this last Sunday, and it's probably along with the thing I said about writing Revelation as a letter to real people, probably the moment in the preaching series I've done in the church here where I felt the most degree of, ah, that's a really illuminating one-liner that helps us is a one-liner I took from Josh Butler where he says in his book, The Skeleton's in God's Closet, which is outstanding, by the way, Josh Butler says, God's agenda is to get the hell out of earth. God's agenda is to get the hell out of earth. And he produces this diagram, which I think is almost anointed in its brilliance, he says, what happens is otherwise you end up thinking that we're on earth and in the future God's going to create a heaven and a hell and you might go to that one and you might go to that one, which in part is true. But Josh says that's just the wrong way of framing the biblical emphasis, which is that hell is a power, as you get in James 3 and so on, that is already at work in the world and it's at work in you and it's at work in our families and our cities and our worlds. And heaven is definitely a power at work in the world because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus says, it's right here. I'm coming to bring it. And that effectively, therefore, Jesus' mission and the mission of God in and through the church is to bring the power of heaven to drive out the power of hell from the earth so that it gets thrown away forever and only heaven may be left. And that also helps you with the marriage of heaven and earth that takes place in Revelation 21 as the heaven comes down to earth and fills it with eternal beauty and glory. And I found that line, God's agenda is to get the hell out of earth. I used it on Sunday and even said, and God's agenda is to get the hell out of me because I think that's true too. And I've used that and that image and found it very helpful in articulating what I think in many ways Lewis and Keller are also hinting at too but a fusion, if you like, of Lewis's imagination, some of the apologetic work that has been done by people like Keller more recently, and the way Josh packages it in that book and that account and that graphic, the combination of those has really helped me. So you don't end up minimizing the, the awfulness and destructiveness of hell, but neither do you end up making it look, feel like God is looking at that scene and going, Whoa, ha, 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 you should have repented when you had the chance, which I think is very problematic with our doctrine of the goodness of God. Even if we know apologetically or exegetically it might be defensible, we've got to be we, you know, in the end, our imaginations do, are, do form a part of the way we conceptualize God and hell, and they need to be consistent enough for that to make sense. So, a few pages there on Revelation 19 and 20. Anybody want to come back to me at that before we move into the... In fact, I will leave, remove that because I don't like that lur, you know, lurid image hanging over behind me. Um, so I'll move it on to the next page, which we will look at. And from now on, it'll be nothing but good news, I promise. Uh, Emily. Is the, is, in that image, is hell 
the lake of fire or the abyss, the source of evil or the final destiny of evil. I think, I actually, do, I, I, I don't remember whether Josh even distinguishes between them. I don't think he does. I think he uses, in the, much of the, in, elsewhere in that section of the book, he is de- describing hell using both images. Hell is, in a sense, in the James 3 sense, hell is source of evil. In the, in the Revelation 20 sense, hell is final destiny of evil, where it gets thrown. And of course, both are true. Um, of course, the centre of heaven, isn't it? And that heaven is the source of good, but it's also the final destiny of good. So I don't, I, in a way, I, I wouldn't want to over-separate them anyway. Okay? Dave King. It's, reflecting on the C.S. Lewis approach, hmm. would, would it be um, fair yes. to you know, it's, it's not Yes. Yeah, so is Lewis's vision particularly... I think it comes through less clearly in the apologetic works, actually, than it does in The Great Divorce itself, which I guess is what you're thinking of, isn't it? And that's the disintegration of... Is, effectively, is the great divorce annihilationist? I haven't, I haven't thought enough about that question to give a proper answer, I can, but I can see what you mean. Um, I think in the sense that there is death, yes, in the sense that there is still ongoing experience for the individual, no. No, well, quite, and that's where Tom Wright goes in, that, in a slightly strange section, I think, of his uh, Surprised by Hope. He quite slightly unexpectedly almost describes hell as like the land of zombies. I mean, he doesn't quite, and he might not use that word, but that's pretty much where he goes with it. I found it quite a little bit of a weird bit to read. Um, but I think, again, Lewis influenced um, that, yes, that there is a sense, is almost, a, perhaps, it, the way I've read it until now is that there's almost a slightly middle ground that they're trying to reach, saying annihilationism is more palatable, but eternal conscious torment is still textually more robust on various grounds, and effectively what we have is a sort of halfway thing where you are facing eternal judgment, but the you that is is effectively a disintegrated you that doesn't really look like you. Um, and, but I think there is, there is obviously speculation, a lot of speculation in that, and I, in a way I want to preserve the integrity of both poles, which is to say this is an appropriate just judgment for all that we are and do but it is also and it's a freely chosen in a sense outcome for us and it's not something that anybody in hell is going I want to be free please give me grace I think everyone in hell is doing what Milton's Satan is doing which is to say no I'd rather reign in hell than serve in heaven I think that's I think that that aspect of what they're saying is absolutely right but I don't want to teach that or communicate it in a way that implies that hell isn't really that bad and I think there are variants of that kind of teaching that can, to me, fall foul of that. Um, so I'm kind of saying yes and no, but that may not be very satisfying. Um, let's just have one, maybe one more question. I just saw a few people asking. Um, just you guys are both... Uh, okay, no, it's only those two anyway. So, Dan. So could I comment on the relationship between the doctrine of hell and the motivation for evangelism? Um, so this is something, this is one of those books slash articles slash pamphlets, something that I want to write at some point. I've got a title for it. It's going to be Evangelism. And I, I, it's just like sometimes a word comes up and you, I, I did it with you charismatic. And it took me years to write it, but I thought, I'm sure that word will turn into a book somewhere. Uh, or, a, or an article or something, because I, I completely agree with what you're saying. I just think, I, I think the biblical motivation for evangelism, with, as far as I can tell, with one possible exception, although even there it's never clarified that it's actually hell that he's talking about. And that, the possible exception is in Romans 9 to 11, interestingly, where Paul is saying, 
I wish I could be cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, which implies some degree of, I wish the judgment that's falling on them would fall on me. But even then, he's not at, he doesn't say hell. He doesn't say anything that even explicitly communicates hell. But with that exception, and it may not even be an exception, the motivation for evangelism doesn't ever seem to be saving people from eternal judgment. I think you can see why it should be a motive, why it's a factor, but no, as far as I can see, no, neither Jesus nor any of the apostles ever goes there. And I think that has two impacts. I think it, it, think it affects the way that, it affects what they think the doctrine of hell is designed to do, and it affects what they think the motivation for evangelism ought to be. And why, by, by mashing the two together as we, I say we do, I can't speak for anybody else, but I think as our, I think evangelicalism often does, I think you end up undermining what the biblical writers are trying to do with the doctrine of hell as a reassurance of divine justice, rather than as a motivation to get people out of it. And vindication of God, you know, effectively that the martyr's blood has not been in vain and that those who have, you know, persecuted and oppressed the church are going to face their comeuppance. But you also, because you're always going, I want to get people out of hell rather than people into it. And so the slight way in which fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, she's been thrown into the sea, doesn't become very easy to celebrate for the Christian because you're always trying to rescue people from it. So I think we can skew the doctrine of hell, but we can also skew the motivation for evangelism, which of course is far more positive and uplifting than simply rescuing people from hell. It's that Christ might be proclaimed and glorified in all nations. It's that the people of God might be gathered from every tribe and nation and that there might be this glorious multicolored expression of the wisdom of God. It's that we might be able to see the kingdom of God come throughout the earth. It's that the little stone might spread and take down every empire as it goes. It's that nations in themselves might be discipled to the glory of God. It's or it's just that people might know Christ and people might have the joy that we do. Saying, I, if there was no hell, I remember Roger Olson asking this question. He said, that in some ways, the cha- he said, how do, you know you're, how do you know you're not a Christian when it comes to the doctrine of hell? And he was setting it up as if you'd, you'd become too liberal on it. And he said, one of the ways you can tell is that if there was no doctrine of hell, you wouldn't particularly care about whether people became Christians. He's saying because in the, imper- the missionary imperative comes from, I want people to know Christ. I, I, of course, even if there was no hell, I'd still want to tell the whole world about how great Jesus is because I wouldn't want you to have not to know him even in the here and now, let alone in the resurrection. And that's, that's what I live for. So I think we, we can, by putting the two together, mess up the doctrine of hell and mess up the motivation for evangelism. But I want to turn that into a book or an article sometime, and I haven't yet had the time. But maybe you could write it for me. That would be great. Okay. Sorry, Phil. We're just, I just want to limited time but let's look let's look at new creation in revelation for a moment and uh there's a sort of textual page and then just an imaginative page before we turn to our final uh three-slided vision the there are four in as i see it there are four main components to christian eschatological hope and every generation prioritizes different ones so put this puts them in a different order and i might get you to discuss this on your tables in a moment one element of what it is to, when the new creation comes, one element of the new creation is the beatific vision or the blessed vision, the, bliss, the vision of Jesus himself face to face, right? Which is the high point of it. It may be the one that some of us reflect on the least, but they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they'll be his people and God himself will be with them as their gods. That in many ways, the major focus of Revelation's vision of the future is you're going to be with Jesus forever. And that, you might think, well, obviously, but that might not necessarily take center stage in all presentations of it. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. The presence and face and knowing of God and being known is at the center, in that sense, of the blessed vision of Jesus. 
You also have the renewal of humanity as another major thread. The idea not just that we're going to see Jesus, but that we are going to be made fully new and be given new bodies, but also new sinless selves that, in a sense, are going to be the perfection of everything we've always wanted to be. Come, let me show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. Just this glorious new church, this new humanity, this new human race. And so we, are, we, have our, we pin our hopes on seeing Jesus, on being made entirely new ourselves as people. On the defeat of evil, much of the joy of the new creation is expressed by what is not there. And you may have noticed when we did you know, a, a six that we saw in the fall of Babylon that we didn't, I don't think either Ian or I actually mentioned, but that there are six and no longer will you be found. And no longer, no longer, no longer. There were six of them. And then when you read Revelation 21, there's six no mores. There's no more sea. There's no more pain. There's no more death. There's no more. They, they give six in each case. It's like the, the, John is saying the joy of the new creation is in large part communicated by what is not there. And it's so hard for us to understand as we talked yesterday when someone asked that funny question, could you comment on the relationship between time and eternity just before lunch or that kind of thing. But you remember, we're saying you can't really conceptualize time without death because we're so constrained by death. So what does it mean to have death removed? And you think a big part of Christ, the Christian vision, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 or Romans 8, a big part of what he's building up to is there's not going to be any of these things. Like, the defeat of evil has been completely... Um, completely achieved and accomplished. There'll be no night there. Nothing unclean will ever enter it. There won't be anything accursed. There's no sin. There's no evil. And trying to imagine a world like that is a major part of Christian hope. And then finally, of course, the renewal of creation itself. That I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Behold, I'm making all things new. It's done. And the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I'll give from the spring of the water of life without payment, and the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I'll be his God and he'll be my son. And those four elements all form a major part of Christian hope, and we need to, and there may be others, of course, as well, but we almost need all four legs of that table to be there, otherwise we get wonky. And so if, for instance, in our preaching or our pastoral thinking and discipleship around Christian hope, which is a major theme, we spend all our time on the renewal of creation and a bit on the defeat of evil, but we never mention the fact we're actually going to see Jesus there, we're out of shape. If we spend all of our time similarly here and we never go there, then we're out of shape. So it, I think it's just a way of saying, how balanced are we in our thinking about it? And I wondered if just, maybe only for two or three minutes, but just kick that around in your table. Like If you had to rank them from one to four in emphasis in your church, how would you rank them? And do you think you're broad? Is the table roughly straight or is the table pretty wonky in a particular way? Can you just kick that around for maybe three minutes or so on your, on your table? What are your, what are your conclusions on this? What do you, what do you, what are we think, what are we thinking on the tables? Any, any of them, anybody think that one or other is, is more prominent or noticeably less prominent? Rich specs, yep. Yeah. Okay, so context matters and the circumstances of the believers you're speaking to will shape the emphasis you place. I think that's a good point. Yeah. Mark? Yeah, so we may place ever we may place emphasis on heaven, but 
it's, it can still be, and this has obviously been Tom Wright's big hobby horse on this, it can still be very ethereal and, and not very real, and it can feel like it's not very physical. Now, I, I'm not sure whether there's almost an overcorrection happens as well. In some, it kind of depends where you are. I, con- again, context matters, because in some circles, it's like people are just saying, oh, it's great, the new creation is going to be the whole time as I'm going to be gardening and... You know, not that there's anything wrong with gardening in or anything. You know, but I, it's like a very, it's so physical that it's almost as if. I mean, is, is Jesus going to be there? You know, it, it's sort of, it can. And I'm not saying Tom does that. I just think there can be an overcorrection. But depending on where you are, you are at risk of what was that, Jeremy? I thought he was the gardener. <laughs> I thought he was the gardener. Exactly, Spurgeon. There you go. Um, you and I have both been taught by the same person, haven't we? Um, but yeah, there's this. I think the. the Depending on where you are, you might have people are still thinking angels playing harps and they don't get the joy of the new creation and the physicality of it. Or it might have overcorrected so much that it just looks like a sort of giant garden-like playground for us without any sense of Jesus there. And I think both of those risks... You just have to read your setting and yourself and know which one might I need to re-emphasize. But I think the point here is that all four of them are clearly present. Bex, are you going to make a... a, a... No, I was just going to ask your question. Yeah. Yeah, the right-hand side of the page, she's saying, my, I'm more, I naturally gravitate to the right-hand side of the page, and that might mean I need to spend a bit more time on the left-hand side, and so on. Here's, um, that's a sort of, at a level of these things are in the text. In some ways, this is probably the area of Christian theology where imaginative fiction has the greatest power to evoke what is taking place, in that the propositional, there will be no more this, that, or the other. Do you see that, friend? Yes, I can see it. It's at, in some ways the least powerful, because... Because we are dealing, by its very nature, we are dealing with things which do not yet exist, and therefore you can't illustrate them perfectly unless you start imagining things. And that's where I think Christian fiction has been so helpful. Uh, and it's not just Christian fiction, of course, in Augustine's case. Um, but in just dramatizing it. And so just here's a little bit on renewed desire, that is the renewal of humanity, renewed justice, that is the removal of evil, and renewed physicality, that is the new creation that may help you. Augustine in the City of God. The souls in bliss will still possess the freedom of the will, though sin will have no power to tempt them. They will be more free than ever, so free, in fact, from all delight in sinning, as to find in not sinning an unfailing source of joy. It's beautiful, isn't it? That's, and that's the doctrine of freedom from sin that you'd find in Paul. The idea that's what it means. And I don't actually think Augustine ever quite said, here's the, here's the chain, here's how it works. I've looked into it, I can't find it anywhere in this form, but it's attributed to him, the idea clearly comes from him in various ways, that we live in a state, that Adam in the garden was in a state of posse peccare, it is possible to sin. And then having sinned, it is now non posse non peccare, it is now not possible not to sin for humans in Adam. And then Christ comes and it becomes posse non peccare, possible not to sin, but in the new creation it will be non posse peccare, not possible to sin. And that's what Augustine is saying even here. We will be so free that in not sinning, we will be able to delight in having a freedom that current freedom to decide, do I do that or do I do that, will just pale into comparison. True honor will never be denied where due, never be given where undeserved. God will be the source of every satisfaction, more than any heart can rightly crave, more than life and health, food and wealth, glory and honor, peace and every good, so that God, as St. Paul said, may be all in all. He will be the consummation of all our desiring, the object of our unending vision, our unlessening love, our unwearying praise. Augustine's a smart guy. Dostoevsky, and many of you, if you heard me 
preached much on almost anything, you'll probably have heard this quote pop up. You'll hear a lot from Keller as well. I just think it's such a great section, though, because, I, because in the Brothers Kind of Matsov, I think you get the most fierce uh, attack on the existence of God in any literature ever um, on the basis of the problem of suffering. I don't think there is, in the chapter Rebellion, when Ivan Karamazov lays into the Christian vision of God, um, which, yeah, it's the sort of chap- this comes in the immediately preceding chapter to that, and it's in the words of the same character, but there is, I don't think there's any statement of the problem of suffering and evil that's better. And of course, Dostoevsky's writing it in the context as a Christian writer that finishes with the vision of resurrection and that is preceded by the quote we're about to read. So it's a stunning, it's, it's almost best when you can articulate your enemy's best arguments better than they can. But I honestly think when you read, it is, it's a deeply troubling chapter to read, Ivan's rant about them. And even if you don't read the whole novel, which I only did a couple of years ago, just reading that, that chapter or two is like, whoa, know your enemy. This is, this is a strong argument against the existence of God. But immediately before it, the very same character, Ivan, who is the anti-God character in a way in the book, is talking to his younger brother, who is the pro-God character. And he says this about the future. He says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that's happened. He says, I believe like a child that something so beautiful is going to happen that everything evil I'm about to talk about will be undone and made somehow not only even forgivable but justifiable. I don't know what it is. I can't imagine it. No mind has conceived or imagined what God has in store for those who love him. But something that beautiful will happen and it will, if you like, unpick all of the evil that has happened ever uh, up to that point. And of course, that's something in that famous line of Sam Gamgee's at the end of Return of the King, isn't it? Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? And that, in, that is everything sad going to come untrue, is a shorter statement of what Dostoevsky is effectively saying in that quote. It's the renewal of justice. It's the destruction of evil. And I think these, these quotes sometimes get somewhere more than you might get in your preaching. And so I've, you, t- using these stories can be really helpful. And then, of course, I think probably the most famous example in in fiction, certainly anything remotely approaching Christian fiction, of depicting the new creation since Dante, I would say. I mean, that might be grandiose, but I, I think so. In terms of how often people go to it, would be in the Narnia stories, because I think Lewis is so big on this and evoking it so well, and of course he does it for children, which Dante didn't quite. Um, <laughs> and you have these are some of the comments that emerge even in those final two chapters of The Last Battle. I've come home at last. This is my real country. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia so much is because it sometimes looked a little bit like this. And I find that, you know, anywhere you are, you're just, as I was a couple of weeks ago in south of France looking at the stars, and you, anywhere you are, I go, the reason why, you, is it wrong to love this? Back to Mark's comment a minute ago, I think, about the physicality. Is it wrong to love this? Is it wrong? Well, it's wrong to love it if it becomes an ultimate good, but if it becomes a good as a means of taking you somewhere else to the worship of God, now of course it's not wrong to love it. The, th- the things of earth do not grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. They grow brighter in the light of his glory and grace, and that's, that's wonderful so long as they lead you to the worship of God. This is Joe Rigney's book, The Things of Earth, is a great treatment of that. And Bacon, you know, 
what a gift. Like, what a gift that leads you to the goodness of God. And here you have it with the, I know that's a probably not a particularly Jewish-friendly reference. I'm sure there were other good things in the world that would have offended fewer of our brothers and sisters. But, you know, it's a beautiful picture of the reality of new creation taking us somewhere. And the reason why the new creation satisfies to some degree is because, the reason why we love this one so much is because it looks a little bit like the world that we're made for. And then the kids are saying to each other at the Pevensies as they're running through, if one could run without getting tired, I don't think one would often want to do anything else. It's so big. Just what's it? It's powerful because it's like, what does it mean to live without death? If you don't have death, therefore you don't need pain because there's nothing bad going to happen to you. What on earth is life like without pain and without death? I can't imagine running without lactic acid. But if I could, would I ever stop? I don't know. I mean, it's just amazing to think about. Isn't it wonderful, said Lucy? Have you noticed one can't feel afraid even if one wants to? Try it. Like, there was no more, nothing accursed was there. Right? There was nothing there. What could you be afraid of? The further up and the further in you go, the bigger everything gets. The inside is larger than the outside, like an onion, except that as you go in, each circle is larger than the last. Isn't that a, just a stunning picture, not just of the new world, but actually of your encounters with Jesus. He just isn't, it's that stunning story at the start of Peter Lewis's The Glory of Christ, where he says, I quotes this old Welsh preacher, I think he's Welsh, uh, old Welsh preacher who said, I, I had this hero as a kid and I used to idolize him as a local sportsman. I thought he was brilliant. And then I met him. I got to spend some time with him and we went fishing together. And the sticky thing about it was that the closer I got to him, the smaller he became. And then 50 years later in life, I'm, I met a new savior and I've just been journeying more and more into Jesus over the last few years, and the closer I get to Jesus, the bigger he becomes. It's just, it's so rich, isn't it? Just the the closer, further up and further in. And it doesn't, like the things of this world, get smaller. They do, as you know them more. Even people we love very deeply, you see their flaws up close, and you get into Jesus, and he just becomes bigger and bigger and bigger the longer you go. It's just glorious. And of course, the term is over, the holidays have begun. The dream has ended, and this is the morning. So imagine the new creation, and it's just good, I think, when we're preaching or thinking about new creation to evoke as well as to explain. I think we, obviously you can overcorrect as well. You can spend your whole time reading from Narnia and never talking about the text, and that's not good either. But I don't think that's the danger for any of us, except Jez and me, probably, but other than that. You know, but I think having, and actually, but notice how different those quotes are. Yeah, I mean, even that written by very different kinds of people in the church. You've got your sort of, you know, high Anglican, you've got your... You know, long, long, you know, church father would be Roman Catholic and you've got your uh, sort of orthodox-ish kind of Russian guy and writing from very different settings of history. Um, but to see new creation evoked that way and to, back to Rich's comment really, it's contextual. And that there are some people for whom the last battle might sound pie in the sky but for whom the brothers kind of out of will sound like, that's what I need. I need something to happen that's going to undo all of this and so on. <laughs> this is you want an Anglican shout out this late in the day yeah yeah. I, lo- I love Anglicans my father's an Anglican he's sitting over there so you guys should hang out but, um, so now that having done that I'm going to turn very quickly to the fourth vision and what I'm going to do is just go through three pages quite quickly on the fourth vision and then we're going to hear it read at the end okay so you remember that with the fourth the, the notes have died oh well, in a beautiful way, then, then you will see a new set of notes for the old order had passed away. So it's obviously all been set up by some fiendishly intelligent mind. Um, 
So you don't get that with Ian Paul, do you? You know, the thought conference, everything will be written for you in advance. I'm afraid not around here. Um, (laughs) Revelation 21 is arguably the most important chapter in Scripture for our doctrine of the church. Right? We read Revelation as if it culminates in the new creation, and it doesn't really. It gives us eight verses on the new creation, and then it says, come, let me show you the bride. I was at a wedding a few weeks ago, my cousin's wedding, actually, my dad was there as well, and we, it's just, it was one of the most beautifully scenic weddings I've ever been to. It's just in this stunning location in the Cotswolds, down a two-mile driveway, you know, road sort of driveway thing, in the middle of nowhere, manor house, glorious, glorious vision. And when you're there, if I had been there, and I spent my time while I was there saying to the groom, my cousin Jake, and saying, have you seen this? What an incredible place. Where do you, how do you find the house? How do you book this? Look at the cocktails. Look at the mail. Look at the, look at the over the hills and far away. He would, after a little while of that and saying, you're missing the point. Let, come, let me show you the bride. That's what weddings are about. They say, come and look at the bride. And actually, that's how the Bible finishes too. It doesn't culminate in even, even in the new creation. Although, of course, the, I don't want to overplay the distinction between the new creation and the, the church, because John doesn't. Um, they're clear, clear, clearly marked, but they, they are fused together in a beautiful way. But that John's, actually, John's destination, other than the appeal to come Lord Jesus in chapter 22, but his destination in chapter 21 is to show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, the holy city coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel. And what we do is, of course, switch from sevens to twelves. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven plagues becomes twelve gates, twelve angels, twelve tribes, twelve foundations, twelve apostles. Fruits, the twelve kinds of fruit, twelve thousand stadia, 144 cubits. We have finally moved from the land of seven into the land of twelve. And every material in the city communicates the glory, radiance, and light of God in and through the church. The 12 gates are made, as Ian was saying, of enormous single pearls. The 12 foundations are adorned with jewels, some of which some of us don't know what they are. I had to look them all up to see what color they were. Jasper, sapphire, agate, emerald, onyx, carnelian, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, chrysoprase, jacinth, and amethyst. And they are showing that the church, the people of God, the bride of Christ, reflects the multicolored light of God. Imagine pure light shining in an environment with that many colors being refracted through beautiful jewels. The walls are built of jasper. The city and its streets are pure gold, transparent as glass, which is another classic. What on earth does that metaphor look like, Ian? You know, pure gold, transparent as glass. You'd say, hang on, gold is like the least transparent thing in the world. It's like the densest, heaviest substance you can find. What do you mean it's pure gold, transparent as glass? And John's going, I don't know. That's what it looked like. Best I've got. The, The church is too beautiful to be described, right? The apostles are the foundations and the sons of Israel are the gates, In other words, the new has become the foundation for the old. The first have become last and the last have become first. The city's upside down. It's the city that Abraham was looking for, whose designer and builder is God. The city's symmetrical. It's perfectly proportioned. It's a perfect cube like the most holy place. So is the church. It's a cube that would cover, if you took the measurements literally, cover half the continental United States and reach 260 times the height of Mount Everest. And of course, it's explicitly referred to in the, in the temple context in verse 22. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. In the ancient world, you couldn't have, we didn't really have cities without temples. That's what a city was, much as we've often, until recently, used to talk about cities as cathedral places in Britain. So you have a city which doesn't have a temple. People are going, what do you mean? We say, oh no, it doesn't have a temple because God's the temple. Like Solomon's temple, only more so, the bridal city provides light by which the nations walk. And the Queen of Sheba or the Queen of the South come and they 
bring their tribute, their glory and honor into the city and say, here's the very best we have to offer. Now let's beautify the new creation with all the best things from our culture, but which are now being laid at the feet of the Son of God. Its gates will never be shut by day. Nothing unclean will ever enter into it, which is an extraordinary resolution of the tension we all face between inclusivity and purity. Right? All churches face that tension every time you share the Lord's Supper. Are we going to welcome everybody or are we going to remain pure every time you have a join in the church course, every time you have to deal with sin in the church? But in the new creation, the gates are open to everybody, but nothing unclean ever comes in. The, the tension that we, as pastors, if most of us are, wrestle with throughout ministry gets finally and perfectly resolved. So, of course, the question could be, does that only refer to the church as she will be in the future, or does does that reflect something of the glory of the church now? And I think, of course, there is a now and a not yet here, and I think that's how I would resolve it. But if you read Hebrews 12, 18 to 24 in that light, you might say, you have come to Mount Zion. There is, let's not under-realize our eschatology, even as we might be wary of over-realizing it. Look at the brides. And then as you move into chapter 22, you get what I call the Magnificent Seven. There are seven things in chapter 22, verses 1 to 5, that you would expect there to be more than one, and there's actually only one. Right? And these, I just picked them out as the magnificent seven. There is one river where previously there were four, in Genesis 2. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal. There were, in Eden, there were four different rivers cascading out, but now there's only one left. There is one throne for God and the Lamb where you might have expected two, because there are two persons of the Godhead, but they share the same throne. There is one city, the New Jerusalem. Until now, throughout the Bible, really, from the latest Genesis 11, although some might go back to the, you know, Cain and Genesis 4 and 5, there have been at least two cities. Augustine's city of God, city of man. However you read them, you go all the way through the Bible and you've got Babylon, you've got Jerusalem, you've got the kingdom of God, the kingdom of men, city of God, city of man, but now there's only one. There's only one city. The new Jerusalem has become all in all and Babylon's disappeared, never to be found again. There is one tree where there were previously two. In the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, tree of life. In the new creation, there's only one tree. And it's fascinating because, of course, in Ezekiel 47, there weren't two trees, there were 12. But in Revelation 22, there is one tree that bears 12 kinds of fruit to the point that the grammar of the sentence doesn't make any sense. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. What do you mean? A tree, one tree, on either side of the river. That's not a thing, unless it's the weepiest weeping willow you've ever seen. And even then, it can't actually be on both sides of the river. It's just one side spreading over. What are you talking about? I think the point is, no, there is, there is one zulon. There is one tree. It's not a dendron. It's a zulon. It's a the cross is there is one tree out of which it's fascinating. You read the book of Acts and Luke stops calling it a cross and starts talking it a tree. He says this is no longer just a place of death. This is a place of life, of fruit, of leaves which are for the healing of the nations. And there is one tree in the new creation where there were previously two. And it's not a tree of the knowledge of good and evil at all. It's a tree of life. And the nations come and receive fruits and they walk away joyfully rejoicing in the fact that, wow, this is a new creation in which there is abundance of fruit. There are peaches and bananas and melons and all the rest of the things that grow on trees. But it's the tree of Jesus' death and resurrection that means that the nations are healed and his leaves are for healing, and his fruit comes every month. There is one face where we might expect two faces. Right? You think, oh, God's got a face, and the lamb's got a face, but now you are seeing his servants will worship him, 
God and the Lamb, and they will see his face. You think, what on earth? You've got God and the Lamb, but you've got a face. Whose face is it? And it's the face that Paul spoke of, isn't it? We have seen the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and the two faces are one. There is one name where you might expect two or even three. His name, God and the Lamb's name, will be on their foreheads. And there is one light with neither any rival source of illumination, the lamp or the sun, nor any darkness or night. And so that horrifying, one of the darkest lines in the entire Bible, John 13, 30, and Judas left, and it was night. And John says, there's not going to be any night there. There's going to be any night there. Nobody's ever going to walk out of the supper in the middle of the meal to say something or give away Jesus to someone else. There's going to be no nights. There will be no light no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And then we finish with the last words. And some have said, I suppose, a few times to me over the course of the last couple of days, how would you summarize the application of the book of Revelation as a whole, which is difficult to do. In many ways, you, you do it as you go, don't you? But I think in some ways, the best way of summarizing the application of Revelation is to, to look at the last words. Our application, we, we, we apply Revelation through worship. I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me, but he said, you mustn't do that. Worship God. I am the Alpha and the O, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I'm the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. An, we apply revelation by worshiping Jesus and by worshiping God. We apply revelation through obedience. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Behold, I'm coming soon to repay everyone for what he's done. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and enter the city by the gates. Interestingly, perhaps the one we might not have thought of, we apply revelation through attention to the text, to the word of God. Don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. The time is near. If anyone adds to these words, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes them away, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city. We pay attention to the word of God. And we apply revelation through longing. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I'm going to invite Mick to, I just love the way Mick reads the Bible, and many of us know Mick Taylor, just to come out and read chapters 21 and 22 for us. And I just hope this will be something where we can just reflect, pray, hear the word of God read. I will jump back up again in a moment just to say a couple of concluding admin things, so don't disintegrate. Um, but I just love us just to, spend, to finish this conference really just by hearing the words of God read to us. Let's stand. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, come down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. 
And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the last seven plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth creophase, the eleventh jess, Jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates and the twelve pearls, each gate were made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me 
the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evil doer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I'm coming soon. Bring in my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the first and last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let anyone who hears say, come. Let anyone who is thirsty, come. Let anyone who desires to take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. Amen.
Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, and may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with us until that day, Lord. Come. We pray, hasten the day. We long for it. We long for you. We long for the world to be like that. We long for our hearts and lives to be like that. We long for creation to be like that. We long for the church to be like that. We long for you and us to be able to look at one another across the aisle, bride and groom, united forever, face to face. We long for the tree, the tree on which the Prince of Glory died to be abundant, full with abundant fruit of the nations coming to feast on its delights and to be healed. We long for the river to be flowing out and healing the world. We long for all of these things to be so. And we say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Can we thank Mick as well? That was just so helpful. Thank you.